Let's take our Bibles and look to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, the mood seems a little off today. H have you been watching Fox News and CNN too much? Is that what it is? You gotten yourself uh, enamored with the bad news that they try to throttle your way? Uh, the good news is, as I was telling somebody walking in, uh, we have read the end of the book. We know how this thing ends. And it ends to the glory of Christ and in our victory. And that day is coming where the King of kings and the Lord of lords will establish a great th throne right here on earth in Jerusalem. And those of his saints will be with him and we will rule and we will reign along with him. What a glorious truth that is. Hey, we didn't mention it earlier. If you're a guest of ours, we are really grateful that you're here. Uh, we see it as a great honor that the Spirit has brought you to this place. And there's a connection card in the seat in front of you, probably. And if you wouldn't mind just filling that out and then handing it off to somebody at Guest Connections, which is right outside these, these doors in the back, right at the main entry, just hand that to somebody there. They'll give you a gift and, and get introduced to you and get to know you a little bit better. That'll be our privilege. Lots of things have been happening around campus physically. Uh, we've been doing some remodeling in the preschool area that is almost complete and it is transformational. Uh, it has now begun up and around the Kid Stuff Theater and uh, soon it will happen in the atrium and you can see the, the conference center is a little bit slower in its project because it's more massive in detail because uh, we literally took that thing down to the walls. Uh, but that is coming along nicely. Thank you to all of you who have been so generous and the way you've been giving and God is providing for that, we believe by the end of that project that every dollar will have been contributed directly to that project, to God's glory and to his grace. And Dwight is going well. It's uh, obviously a slow process when you're bringing life into something that has been uh, somewhat lifeless. Uh, they had declined in numbers down to 40 or 50 or so, and Meadowbrook has come in in an attempt to love on a sister church and to provide some encouragement, some support, some biblical teaching and leadership. And so that is going uh, as well as can be expected. This is a big season for us with them because we're challenging them on some things and they're challenging themselves as well. So I ask you, don't stop praying. Don't stop uh, petitioning unto the Lord that he would do some great things. There's six attributes that we're asking of them right now that we think will enhance the health of that church and make that a vivacious church in that community for the cause of the gospel. So be praying for that. Uh, all those are kind of uh, in the works right now and just want that church to thrive and want Meadowbrook to thrive as well. All right, so we're in 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning in verse 12. Let's read together. Uh, verse 12 we actually read last week, but I want to bring it forward into the context for this particular text that we're focusing on today. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Man, there's so much that we could have unpacked that we didn't quite get to in that verse, but there's, there's a lot of meatiness in that. Here's one that I just want to lift off. You should expect that people will talk bad about you because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You should just expect that. Uh, the darkness does not like light, and you are a light to the world, and you cause uh, some pain and conflict. You remind them of the conviction that God has already placed upon them in their sin and their unbelief, and you're the reminder of that. 
what should be a sweet smelling aroma to them is actually a stench of death. And guess who brought that to them? You! <laughs> so uh, here Peter is saying you ought to recognize they're going to speak evil of you. But let your character, let your witness, let your life be a testimony that speaks louder than their words. Let it be that they, they seem foolish when they talk about you in those ways. Uh, we should not expect that the world is going to be a friend to us. Now, we want to be a friend to the world so that they might come to know Christ. Uh, but until they do, you should not expect their friendship. All right, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those to do, who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. All right, let me pause here for a moment. Uh, I am asked fairly often, how do I know what the will of God is? Well, throughout the scripture, he tells us very specifically, this is the will of God. And here's one of these passages. This is the will of God. If you want to walk in the will of God, this is a text that you ought to circle, star, bracket, whatever, just because he, God is telling you this. Here's the will of God. Obey those who are in authority over you. Be subject to the governing authorities. This is the will of God. Now, that sort of rocks us today because the government stinks, doesn't it? Uh, the way government officials act sometimes is just yuck. Uh, but here God is saying, Randy, if you want to be in my will, you better subject yourself to them and you, ne you need to come under their authority. Now that's interesting. We'll talk a little bit more deeply about that in a moment. So when we do this, uh, come under the submission of governors and emperors, kings, presidents, whatever it is, we, we recognize that God has sent those people, particularly the king and the emperor and the, his emissaries, the governors, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Hey, the central component of government is to punish the evildoers and promote the people who do good. That's the central role of government. The God-given function of government is to be the sword for the people. Now, you and I don't take vengeance on our own. Uh, when we look at individuals, uh, you're not to bear the sword and go around uh, executing justice. You know, the Lord had to get on to Peter for doing that. Malchus, the servant of the high priest, came along with others to arrest Jesus. Remember what, what Peter does? He pulls out his sword and he takes a swipe at him and he gets his ear, cuts his ear off. Remember what, what the Lord said to Peter? Put your sword away. Those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. In other words, you can't take justice on your, own, on your own. Government will bring the sword against you. Put your sword away. You're not to execute justice in that way. And so this individual vigilantism that, that is uh, maybe prone sometimes, God is saying that's not, that's not your role. Your role is to turn the other cheek to go the extra mile, to give beyond. It's government's role to punish the evildoer and to lift up, to encourage and bless those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. 
Now, the central theme for this passage really is in verse 12 and 15. Now, there's a whole lot that needs to be unpacked in the surrounding verses, but let me just focus for a moment on 12 and 13, putting those two verses together. They're on the screen. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. All right, I've got a few points that I want to make from this text that I think are important for us to contemplate, to live by. And the first is this, righteous living silences naysayers of Christianity and fosters gospel impact. So the way Christians live before other people is either going to give opportunity, foster the opportunity for the gospel, or it is going to destroy the credence of the gospel. Your life matters. The way you live your life matters. The way you live your life will give a platform for the expression of the gospel or it will crumble the platform and everybody who hears you is going to denounce the gospel because your life doesn't match up to one who has been transformed. So he's saying your life matters in this way. Don't live your life in a way that people will denounce the gospel because your life doesn't indicate the transformation that you proclaim the gospel has. And specifically, this is the will of God. Let it be so that you are subject to governing authorities, those who he has placed in authority over you, and in that you will have a platform to communicate the gospel. You know, the accusation against Christ that was false, that was brought before Pilate and others, was that he's a troublemaker, he's an insurrectionist. He has zealots with him. Peter's, of course, the zealot. Uh, He's one that is doing things that are contrary to what Rome requires of us. And so obviously that was false. Uh, He was not doing that. His kingdom was not physical. It was not of this earth. And he, he outright said that my kingdom is of heaven. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It is not physical. As of yet, it is not physical. It is spiritual. One day it will be physical. And what a day that will be. But as of now, it is not physical. So he was not as an insurrectionist. He was not a seditionist. He was one who was building a spiritual kingdom from heaven. And he was offering that to us. So it's imperative that you and I would live authentically righteous in this new life that God has given to us with the nature of the Holy Spirit. And in doing that, we have a platform by which we can communicate the gospel. So Peter emphasizes in this text, you see it right there in the scripture, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, on the day he brings grace to them and and draws them to himself. That by doing so, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now Jesus had a similar message. It was a different illustration, but Jesus gave a similar message and that is something like this, you are the light of the world A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand, right, to give light, to bear light around all. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the works are like a light of a city on a hill And everybody can see that city. Everybody can move towards that city and want to be there. It's like a a light 
in your room, a lamp that you turn on and it, it brings forth light in the darkness of the room. Your life and my life should be such a light to others that they are drawn to Christ. And so when we deliver the message of the gospel and God uses that grand testimony that we've been living out and now with his words that are articulated in truth, it comes together to bring the day of visitation of the Lord, the salvation of that individual. But if you are one who rejects the authority that God has placed over you, you're one who's rebellious against the governors who God has placed over us, then we bring a cloud, not just to our character, but to the message of Christ. We, we are living as one who is not transformed, but yet we are calling for people to be transformed. It's interesting that he chooses government, submission to government, to be part of the platform for our character, that we might have gospel presentation. James said it this way, also faith by itself, it does, if it does not have works, is dead. So let it be that the faith you're talking about is the faith you are expressing in your life. All right, second thing. Honorable living requires our submission to God-ordained institutions and authorities. Now, what I'm about to tell you is challenging. Uh, honestly, I spent multiple days on this passage just going over it and going over it. Kay's tired of me saying this, but I, I say it regularly. Oh, this is a, this is a tough text. And man, I've really been, been uh, wrestling with it. But I'm just going to tell you this is really a tough text, and I've been wrestling with it. It's a challenging text in light of today, but it's been that way historically. And what I mean by that is the God-ordained institutions of government and the officials that God has put over us, many of them blatantly oppose God. Many of them are counter to the things of God and the Word of God. And they honestly negatively impact people when God said, this is my role for government that you would do good for people. But yet there's such a negative impact from many of them. But listen to this. This is where I've struggled, and I think you might as well. Peter does not give qualifiers to the imperatives that he's making in this, in this text. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he simply makes a command, be subject to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to the governors. In other words, everybody else that the, the emperor has put in positions of power. It's fascinating for me that Peter brings up the emperor, who, by the way, was Nero. And we'd be hard-pressed to find somebody more wicked, more evil, and more crazy than Nero. I mean, this guy was a, a sadistic brute. Peter would later come to execution by the enforcement of Nero. So this, this whole text is just really a challenge because Peter recognizes that Nero is anti-Christ. And his, his governors are the same way. Pilate is one of the governors there in the time that Peter is writing this, the very one who brought the execution orders unto Jesus. Felix was the governor of Judea and Samaria when the apostle Paul was arrested. And if you remember him, he sort of played with him like a cat would with a mouse. He did that for about two years and all the while just kind of pondering and asking questions. But in the end, we find out that really what he was after was a, a bribe that maybe Paul would give him some money. So he just kind of holds him in, in, in a prison for all this time in order to get something out of him. In fact, the 
emperor actually brought Felix back to Rome and, and challenged him on the cruelty and on the corruption that he brought into that region. He actually dismissed him. He did not execute him, but he came close to it. So Peter is writing to us about coming under subjection to authorities, the emperor, the, the governors, and others, even though they are not of God. They are not followers of Christ. So clearly submitting ourselves to human institution and authority is not a personal endorsement of the one holding the office. Instead, it is an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God who established institutions for the good of mankind. So you may recognize the opposition that an official has to Christians, to Christ, to the Bible, to God himself. Even so, Peter says, by the call of God, submit yourself to that individual. Submit yourself to their authority because there is a greater authority who has put them in their position. Amen. So those of us with a biblical worldview who long for spiritual awakening to the gospel of Christ are grossly disappointed by the nation's leaders who have forsaken the Christian heritage. We have recently seen the Supreme Court make a grand decision about abortion and its legalities as described from the Constitution, which is not there. But there are still many states who will propel the pro-death movement in the Northeast and out to the West Coast and the Midwest states and many, many federal leaders as well as our president and the majority leaders of the House and the Senate advocate for and protect people who kill babies even still. And the government leaders and judges who enact policies that undermine the biblical institution of marriage, they continue to prevail. Many officials promote sexual promiscuity and perversion. Increasingly, they are anti-Bible, anti-Christ, and anti-God. For political gain, they are destabilizing civilization and society and the rule of law. And many state and local federal governments have abdicated their God-given responsibility to punish evildoers and praise those who do good. Nevertheless, God instructs us to subject ourselves to government institutions because civil institutions are from him, although the individual leaders may be very simple and godless. Now let me show you how clear God wants us to understand this. The word translated institution in verse 13 is from the Greek New Testament word called katissis. And scholars translate that as institution. It means the act of founding and establishing and building but every occurrence in the New Testament of that word speaks of God's creative work. It is the initiative of God that it speaks about. If you look up the word in your favorite lexicon, which I'm sure you have, you'll find the meanings of this. A, it is an act of founding. B, it is the act of creating. Or C, it is creation itself. In other words, in the New Testament, it always deals with something that God has done. You and I need to hear this. The government that God has done is what rules over us from the federal, state, and the local levels. We think of this as something man has done, but what we are hearing from Peter, 
by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is that this is the work of God. Now we hear it in other places as well. In Romans 13, it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Can you get more clear than that? He goes on in verse 5 to say, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So the point is that God has created a framework of human systems and institutions, including government, work, and marriage. Those are the three that Peter is going to focus in on in chapters 2 and 3. And when we embrace the God-designed institution, our lives are blessed. And when people rebel against him and his created order, then there is a wrath that comes from God. Uh, look a little bit further in your handout and you'll see this point. Subjection acknowledges that God is sovereign and has ordered the world in a hierarchy system for his glory and our good. Uh, thank you, Brandon, for the amen. Uh, this is one of those that we're not going to get a whole lot of amens out of. So I'm grateful for you, my brother. God is the supreme and a sovereign authority over everything. Now there's an amen. He rules and he reigns. And he has given all authority in heaven and on earth to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And then Jesus himself, who sovereignly rules over creation, in turn has established authorities on earth, and that is the government to the citizens, the church to the believers, parents to children, and masters over employees. From a chapter entitled Honorable Conduct, listen to the writings of the late R.C. Sproul. Satan is intimately identified with lawlessness, he writes. The plunge of the human race into disaster came as a result of our original parents' act of lawlessness, the refusal of Adam and Eve to submit to the Creator. Therefore, every time we do not submit to the rules that plague us all, we are casting our vote with lawlessness, and every time we go out of our way to submit, we bear witness to the one whose law stands above every law. Let me put that in a real simplistic way. Every time you and I set our cruise to 82 in a 70-mile zone, we are ticking towards lawlessness. As a kid, every time you walk around the corner where your parents don't see you and you flip them off because you're mad at them, I would have never done that. <laughs> okay, uh, thou shalt not bear false witness. I have done that. And every time I did that or you have done that, you step toward lawlessness. And every time you usurp the authority in the workplace, you step towards the ways of lawlessness. And you walk in it. It's a big deal. This whole authority is a big deal. It reveals our heart. It reveals the battle of the flesh and the spirit. 
It reveals our need for God's grace. Man, in me, it reveals the need of righteousness that only Jesus can provide. If it were not for Christ, if it were not for his Spirit's nature, if he was not dwelling in me as a triune God, I would be so lawless. In my flesh, I'm given to it. So it's a big deal. Because when you're stepping in lawlessness, you can't call people to righteousness. And when you walk in lawlessness of rebellion, then you can't walk and call people to the transformation of Christ. It's a big deal. So every time we obey our employer, our school teacher, our parents, we give honor to Christ who reigns over the whole universe. This is where the word honor comes to play. I'm a RC advocate. Submitting to God-established human institutions is to submit and honor the Lord. And then, when we have a heavenly motive we have a heavenly motive when we are being subject to earthly government for, its, for the Lord's sake. So this is not about us just doing what's right. This is about us doing it for the sake of the Lord. The obedience to God and his word is motivated by our desire to honor him so our words and actions should never bring reproach on the name of the Lord or his church. And in the context of this passage today, Christians must obey earthly authorities because we trust God and his sovereign control. Chiefly, it is for the Lord's sake that we obey the laws of the land. You hear that? It is for the sake of Jesus that we choose to obey the law of the land. Intentionally, we subject ourselves to them. And in doing so, we are following a living example that Jesus had when he was walking submittingly on the earth. He submitted himself under the authority of the people that were in places of position. For example, the Lord con condemned the sinful leaders of his day for their sinfulness, but he always subjected himself to them. You ever notice how he comes against the ruling officials of the Jewish people? He points out their sin. He points out their lies. He, he points out their rebelliousness, their lawlessness. He calls them a brood of vipers. You, you can't get more clear than that. But at the same time, Jesus constantly submitted himself to their authority. He didn't buck the authority. He didn't go against what they were, were doing in their official capacities. I'm reminded of Jesus standing before Pilate, and he's just in inquisition, peppering him with questions in a, in a sort of a contentful, battering kind of way, in a, in a tongue-in-cheek, austere way, he, he's saying, will you not speak to me? I'm asking these questions and you're not even responding to me. Do you not know that I have the authority to release you or to crucify you? Now listen to Jesus' words. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Pilate, your authority comes from my father and my father is sovereign over all things and is in control. I trust him 
so I am before you. As you were told earlier about Peter who whipped out that sword, the Lord told him to put that away in verse 53 of Matthew 26. Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Peter, this is not the time to fight. This is the time to submit. For God has sovereignly called me to this place for this purpose. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was the perfect example of being submissive to the authority, even though the rulers who were in authority were wicked, vile, rebellious people. With astonishing meekness, Jesus did not object when the Jews and the Gentile authorities unjustly tried him, convicted him, and viciously murdered him on the cross of Calvary. We follow the same living example of Jesus when we submit to those who are in authority over us. And in doing so, as Peter says, we silence the foolish ones who would bring accusations against us. Now, obviously, vigilantes, insurrectionists, seditionists, they claim to be Christians at times, but when they do so, they discount the gospel. What happened on January 6th was a travesty to the law of the land, but even more so, along with those who were calling for the insurrection were signs about God in John 3.16. The witness of Christ is destroyed in moments like that for people who claim to know him. You can't know him, walk with him, say to obey him, and come against the authorities that he has placed over us. Now, I'm not talking about when our officials call us to do something that God has instructed us not to do. I'm not talking about when they stop us from doing what God has instructed us to do. That's not what this text is about. It's a general ruling of being subject to the authorities over us. So it's pretty easy for us to see that vigilantes and insurrectionists claiming to be Christians discount the gospel of Christ. But let me just remind you, so do Christians who show up on the Etowah County mugshots for DUI and drug possession and domestic violence and failure to pay child support and theft and fraud and other lawlessness. So in other words, the shakiness of their lives so destabilizes the foundation of their message that people will discount the gospel because of such living. And I'm going to tell you outright, it should not be for any of us to live according. When Christians honor Christ, their character will reveal that. And their message and their character combined will be powerful unto the gospel and when we act rebelliously to the authority that God has placed over us, we weaken, if not crumble, that platform of the gospel message. It matters how you treat your boss. It matters how you obey your parents. It matters what you do according to the laws of God and his governments. So I would say ask the Holy Spirit to incline your heart to seek first the kingdom of God 
And let it be revealed by your subjection to the authorities that God has placed over us. So I'm sure you remember the narrative of Paul and Silas after commanding that a demon come out of a little girl who had been trailing them for a few days. She was a fortune teller who was enslaved. Once the girl's enslaved, enslavers realized that she was no longer with that gift from the demon and that their money would soon dry up, they were infuriated. So they seized Paul and Silas and brought them to the rulers there in the city who took them then to the magistrates, the judges of that community, and they made accusations against the missionaries that they were disturbing the city and advocating unlawful customs and practices. That was false. Nevertheless, the magistrates stripped them of their clothing and had them beaten with rods severely. The Bible says after being inflicted with many stripes, they were thrown into prison. Now, rather than railing against the leaders and the judges, vowing to seek revenge against this erroneous treatment, even denouncing the failure of justice, rather than doing that, Paul and Silas, chained and confined in a dark and dank inner prison there in Philippi, began to sing to God and pray aloud to Him. And while everyone was listening to this crazy worship that was happening. A violent earthquake took place. And the Bible says that the earthquake actually shook the foundations of the prison so that the doors came open and the shackles dropped off. It was the perfect opportunity to make a run for it. But to the shock of the jailer, they remained. Paul called out to him when the jailer drew his sword ready to take his own life for he knew his life would be taken from him when the escapees were found out. When Paul called out to him not to do it. Don't take your life. We're all here. Now I want you to listen to the words, the next words the jailer says. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What? What must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas live for the Lord's sake. And such a living is possible because they trusted God's sovereignty, believing that he providently has every detail of their life in order and he is using every detail to bring about his perfect will. Even in the interior of a Roman prison at the command of unfair judges serving at the pleasure of an evil emperor, the men believed that those who loved God, all things would work together for them, who were called according to his purposes. For the Lord's sake, Paul and Silas subjected themselves to the governing authorities, even when they could have broken free, resulting in the salvation of the jailer and his entire household. Here's what I want you to see. Because they remained subjected when they had opportunity to do something different and run for it, because they remained in place, the jailer recognized these guys are different. These guys have transformation that I want. They have an authority, a sovereign that is higher than any I know, and I want what they have. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I hear the connection of that. When we subject ourselves to the authorities over us, 
to those God has placed in rule, even though they may be wicked to the core. When we do so, the validity of the gospel is pronounced, not just with words, but with our actions. And God will use that. The jailer, I don't think, would have ever been saved, nor his household, had Paul and Silas not remained subjected to the authority that God had placed in their lives. Did they like the circumstances that they were in? No, of course not. They didn't appreciate the, the miscarriage of justice. Obviously, they experienced agony and pain and utter humiliations at the hands of ruthless individuals. And yet the trauma and the pain inflicted by these lawless men was intense, but they trusted in the sovereign over them. Meadowbrook, we live in the most remarkable country in the world. No country exceeds ours. The people of the world long to come to the United States. As George Washington said in 1790, the establishment of our government seems to be the last great experiment for promoting human happiness. The world knows that if you want the greater opportunity for happiness, you come to the United States of America. However, this country is far from perfect, isn't it? Our elected officials and appointed judges often disappoint, some thoroughly so. At times we may consider the leaders of our government so radically different from our own and wonder how in the world it could be. The laws they impose, the taxes they levy, the money and resources that they waste, the simple principles that they uphold and the policies that they enact that are counterproductive to the good of the people just don't make sense to us sometimes. But let us be reminded of a simple truth. God has us right where he wants us. God has placed us directly under the government and officials that he has put in position to bring about his perfect will. God is sovereignly orchestrating every detail of the United States and every detail of the world to bring about his perfect will that will culminate in a plan where Jesus Christ is known by everybody to be the great King of kings and the Lord of lords. Listen to me. Stay the course. Stay the course. You say, well, it's evil to the core. Oh, it's been more evil than this. Stay the course. Can I tell you, because I've read the entirety of the Bible, it's going to get more evil. Amen. It's going to get worse. But there's coming a day, the great reset. There's coming a day when all those who are enemies of Christ will be crushed. There's coming a day when he will stand victorious. For a thousand years he will reign with an iron scepter in his hand. And that day the glory of Christ will be known. The peace of the earth will be prevailing. And then following that there will be an utter disassembling of those who are opposed to God. And then there will be a great gathering of the saints in the new heaven and the new earth. And that reset will be glorious. But until that day, let us subject ourselves to every governor, to every president, to every judge that God has placed in authority over us. 
And may it be that our life of submission would be like that of Christ so that the message of the gospel will not be discounted by people who make accusations foolishly against us and our God. To the glory of Christ and for his sake, let it be so. Amen. Lord, we pray that you would give us all the grace necessary to accomplish what you have called us to in this passage, to have a biblical frame of thinking, to have sight set on our sovereign, and to obey in all ways those he's put in authority over us. And we trust you for the end, that you will bring and execute justice and wrath where it's necessary, vengeance where it's necessary, and goodness to all who follow you. I pray it would bring an elevation of Christ and his message because we choose to live rightly in your word and counsel. In Jesus' name, amen.